Good morning, Sanctuary. How are you this morning? Good, good. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. I love this, pa- this uh, chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It's not very hard to find uh, right at the beginning of the Bible. And, and I love it because um, one of the things that's so special about this chapter is right at the beginning of the Bible— We get this sense and we get this recognition that this story that we are a part of is something really special. That Yahweh, this God that we serve, speaks things into existence. He creates things just by his words, just by his speaking. When God speaks, things happen. When Preston speaks, nothing happens, right? But, but when God speaks, things happen, and he creates all kinds of things and creates a variety of things. And we see this story progress, and then by day six, right, he has created day and night. He's created land and sea. He's created animal life and plant life. And then he creates human beings. In verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Personally, when I read the creation story, I can't think of a better metaphor than an artist creating a piece of artwork, right? God takes the raw matter of the universe, this inky darkness, the the chaos, and he forms it, and he fashions it, and he gives it meaning. And it's this forming and this fashioning that gives creation its significance and its purpose. If you know anything about art, or if you're just one of those people that says, I don't know art, but I know what I like, you will know that good art has transcendence to it. There's something to it that kind of goes beyond and is greater than the sum of its parts. A really good painting is worth a lot more, is a lot more expensive than the cost of the paints and the canvas, right? Because there's something to it. There's something that's happened in the process, in the creative process. There's been a forming and there's been a hand on it that's given it meaning and purpose. And that's the case with creation. Because God created this world, there is something significant. There's something transcendent and really amazing about it. Uh, theologians like to speak about God in a couple different ways. And I was always taught in school that we need to keep these two kind of things in tension with one another. The first thing is that God is imminent, that he has imminence, that he is, this means that he is close to us, that he's near to us, that he's present, that he's not far away, but that he's close. The other one is God's transcendence. This is the idea is God is huge and he's big and he's powerful and he's beyond our comprehension. And both of these are really important and they're important to keep in mind. But one of the things that I find as I read the scriptural story is that it's hard for me to make a really strong distinction between God's imminence and God's transcendence. They seem to kind of go together. 
For example, the ultimate expression of God's imminence is the person of Jesus, that God stepped into our world, that he came close to us. But when I look at the love that's displayed in Jesus and God's love for all of humanity, I go, wow, that is a love that is beyond my comprehension, right? That is something big and that is something great. When I look at creation, I see the beauty and the majesty of creation. Something in me says, I bet you someone, the God who created something this beautiful is pursuing relationship. He wants to be close. I think that we like... uh, distinctions between imminence and transcendence because we we like dualities a lot of times. Uh, We like the difference between big things and small things and physical things and spiritual things, but they always seem to go together. And we live in a world that because God created it, it is bursting with transcendence. It is bursting with meaning and significance. But we also see in the creation story that human beings are called to be part of the creation project, right? They're called, first of all, they're called to steward creation, to exercise rule over creation. And also they're called to participate in the creation of life. They're called to be fruitful and multiply. Human beings are called into this creation project. But really quick, by Genesis 3, we see that this creation project begins to go off track, Because human beings reject their role in the creation project. Instead, they want to run it themselves. They've forgotten that it is really God's project and they have a role to play in it and it becomes all about them. And we see because of that, that the image that they bear and the responsibility that they carry begins to break apart. It begins to unravel. It begins to come apart at the seams. And because of that, all creation begins to break apart so that every part of creation, all of our world actually shows some evidence of sin and brokenness. Now, this doesn't mean the fact that they're broken images doesn't mean that they've lost their image altogether doesn't mean that we as humans have lost our image because of sin. It doesn't mean that God has given up on us and thrown us in the garbage and said, no, now we're moving on from here. No, we still bear the image of God, but it's broken. And the beauty is that God doesn't give up on humanity and doesn't give up on creation. But he continues to pursue us. He is faithful. In fact, he chooses a group of people, the children of Israel, to carry forward this kind of restoration project of blessing the world, of helping put the world back together again. And ultimately, that is found, that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That this restoration, this redemption, this creation project coming back in line is because and through Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that once again, we are invited back as co-creators. We are invited back into this creation project. Our text today is Ephesians 2, 8. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's another translation that I really like called the voice translation. You probably have not heard of it. It's a pretty, pretty new translation, and so I wouldn't make it your primary one because it hasn't stood the test of time. But what I love about this, this translation is that they have teamed together. One of the thoughts is that in the original Hebrew and Greek languages of Scripture, we see there's a lot of artistry. There's poetry. There's, there's meter. There's rhythm. There's uh, really a lot of artistry in the text. And when we translate it into English, sometimes we can lose some of that 
artistry. So what this translation has tried to do is pair together artists and scholars to work on the translation and try to recapture some of the artistry in the original text. And I think that the product is, is pretty cool. So I wanted to read this passage in the voice translation so you can hear some of the artistry. Uh, verse 8, for it is by God's grace that you've been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or our effort. It is God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it. Not one of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. For we are the product of his hand. Heaven's poetry etched on our lives. Created in Jesus the liberator to accomplish the good works God arranged long ago. Today, I want to look at um, the way that we do, why we do good works in our life. And then also, I want to look at the role of creativity in the Christian faith. Now, these may sound like two really different things, okay, good works and creativity. And when you hear them, some of you actually may have negative connotations to one of these two things. First of all, when we talk about good works, some of us have all kinds of baggage that comes with that. Some of us jump back maybe to Sunday school and, uh, you know, the gold stars that we got on our badges in Sunday school or um, the ways that we tried to achieve certain things or accomplish certain things. Uh, I did Bible Bowl as a kid. And if we learned enough quiz, trivia, and scripture verses, and all those kind of, we get Bible Bowl bucks. We actually got like money to uh, to go and buy things at a store, and it was great. It was really good incentive as a kid. But sometimes there is that's the only framework that we have for doing good things is earning or kind of achieving. On the other hand, when we talk about creativity, some of you just tune out immediately. Because you say, I'm not a creative person, I'm not an artistic person, so when I think of creativity, that's not for me. But I think both of these things today have something in common with each other, and I want us to maybe be challenged to think about good works and creativity in a way that we may not have before. First of all, it's important for us to remember that God's call in and of itself is grace. Just the fact that God calls us is grace. The fact that he speaks to us, his words are grace. The fact that he believes in us enough to participate in his work in the world is grace. His invitation is grace. Every part of his calling to us is grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to achieve it. There was nothing that was just we did or we worked really, really hard and we got God's attention and then he said, okay, now you can participate in the life of God. No, he called us by his grace. Now, that doesn't mean there's no choice on our part. There's a choice and there is a response. If you look at the rich young ruler in uh, the gospel story, he had a significant choice. <laughs> he wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. There is a response to grace. There is a life reorientation that happens in response to grace, but it's not an earning. It's not something that we do to achieve or to earn. In fact, in uh, Ephesians 2 here, we see this word, we are God's workmanship. This word workmanship is really interesting. In Greek, it's the word poema, right? And, and it, um, it literally means workmanship or artwork, uh, but, but it's a really interesting word. We don't get uh, a lot of words in English directly from the Greek language. They often go from Greek, and then they're kind of pulled through Latin, and then we translate them in English. So this is the word, the Greek word poema, and then in Latin it was poema, which sounds like the English word what? 
where we get the word poem from. And that's because this original Greek word has a sense of artistry to it. This workmanship or this masterpiece idea is that we are God's artwork. We are God's masterpiece. We are, you could even say we are God's poetry in the world. Where God's grace is present, we could say, there's a song. It's a song of healing. It's a song of redemption. It's a song of wholeness. And we are that song. We are created to sing this song to a broken world. And in order to see this, we need to kind of get past the polarization that a lot of us have between two ideas, faith and works. Because this passage brings both of those together, faith and works. Often in the church, we may hear one of two statements. You may hear one preacher say, we need to preach good works more because people are dealing with all this greasy grace. They're being preached all this greasy grace. So we need to uh, proclaim works more, that people need to do more things to help God in the world, right? That's one statement we hear. The other statement is, no, we really don't need to preach works at all. We really only need to tell people that they can be saved and they're forgiven and they're accepted. But in this passage, more than any, I think the whole scriptural story tells this, but especially in this passage, we see that those two go together and they're not forced together either. It's not that, okay, now you have grace, but you may need to make sure that you have good works or do good works, but remember that you're forgiven. No, they always naturally and organically go together, faith and works. One is not, we're not saved by our works. There's nothing that we could possibly do to earn God's love or God's acceptance for us. We are not saved. He loves us more than we could possibly imagine. But because he loves us, he has a plan for us. He has a dream for us. He has a desire for us. He has created us to be a redemptive force in the world. He's created us to participate in the life of God in the world. He desires that we live in such a way that our lives and the world are transformed. N.T. Wright says it this way, We are saved by grace through faith for good works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Separating the two, faith and works, is like saying, which is more important, breathing or eating? Obviously, if you stop breathing, you don't do much eating. But equally, you will never, if you never eat, you will find your breathing eventually in trouble. Not a perfect analogy, but the salvation, which is by grace through faith, is precisely the rescue of our humanness from all that corrupts it, including ultimately death and sin, which anticipates death. We aren't saved by good works. We are saved for good works. But when Paul talks about good works here, I love that he couches this language in artistry. Works are described, the life of good works is described as a song. Works for Paul here are not a list of prescribed rules that one has to achieve or a hurdle that one has to jump over. But actually, it is artwork, it is poetry, it is a song that emanates from God's grace. It's important that we remember the reason why God desires for us to stay away from sin in our lives. It's not because God has some arbitrary rules that just stay away from these things because I have these certain rules that want to control this and this and this. No, it's because God recognizes that sin is harmful for us. That sin by its very nature destroys and corrupts and decays and breaks apart. And God is about wholeness and healing and restoration. God's desire is that we would lean in towards that and towards him 
and participate in this grace. Martin Luther, who is a kind of Mr. Grace, a lot of people think, he said, God doesn't need your works, your neighbor does. He said, God doesn't need your works, your neighbor does. And that's true. It's not that we earn grace by our works, but that through good works, we participate in God's restoration of humanity and the whole world. So what does this poema life look like? What does this life as God's poetry look like? First, I want to talk about something for a minute, if you'll allow me to, to sidestep, to talk about um, something we don't talk about very often. If we're, if we're really thinking about ourselves as co-creators with God, if we look at ourselves as God's poetry, I want to take a minute and look at the role and the, uh, the relationship between creativity in the church throughout the centuries, specifically artwork in the church, because it's been a pretty complicated relationship. Um, through most centuries in church history, the church actually commissioned or sanctioned artwork. It was called upon by the church, and often it was paintings of, of Jesus or of the saints or elements throughout church history. But there have been a couple times throughout church history where that hasn't been the case. And there's been a really contentious relationship between art and the church. One of those is in the 7 and, 800, 7 and 800s uh, in the Byzantine church. It was called the iconoclastic controversy. Some of you may have studied this in history classes or whatever. But the iconoclastic controversy was a time where it was believed that some people within the church were worshiping some of these images. And, and they might have been. We don't know. We weren't there. But because of that, there was a ban that was created created on all artwork. And also there was a lot of really amazing artwork we believe that was destroyed. Now this sentiment and this fear of kind of um, fear of images and fear of creativity also permeated the life of the reformers, the teachings of the reformers during the time, time of the reformation. And we see that each of the reformers had a major issue with artwork, uh, especially artwork in the church. The most mild of those was Martin Luther. Um, and he would say this, he would say that he wasn't a big fan of painting or of artwork, but he would say that, uh, um, that really the goal is to teach people about God's grace and the fact that they are loved by God and they are fully accepted by God. And if they really get that, if, if grace captures their imagination, if it gets down to the core of who they are, they will stop painting. That was the idea, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> John Calvin took a little different perspective. He, he didn't mind works of art as long as they weren't ever associated with the church or with spirituality. So he said, if you need to paint nature scenes for a secular purpose, then great, go do that. But we really can't have anything like that involved in the church or really in religious life at all. He was also one who said the only songs that we sing in the church should be directly taken from the Psalms. So there was no room for lyrical or poetic creativity or anything like that. Um, and then the third reform, it was interesting. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli, he was a Swiss reformer. He probably took the most radical stance. He said, actually, go into the churches that have even decor and artwork and tear them apart. <laughs> tear them down and burn them and whatever you have to do. He was also a guy who said that all of our church structures should be really, really simple and we shouldn't have any windows in the church because we don't want people to be distracted by nature and creation. They need to focus on the Bible and the preaching of the Word of God. So this uh, shows you, you can begin to see why as Protestants and as evangelicals with a little bit of an awkward relationship with art and creativity. Most people that you talk to today, most Protestants and most evangelicals don't hold this kind of an antagonism towards artwork. They don't hold the same position as their, uh, as their forefathers did. But you can see that because of this, we don't always know exactly what to do with creativity. 
We don't know. We don't always have a box to put it in. In a lot of churches, you will see that art is celebrated if it fulfills a very specific purpose. If it can be labeled as Christian art, or if it really helps support a spiritual message of some sort, or what the preacher has to say, uh, then it will be celebrated. Um, We really like uh, graphic artists because they're able to do great websites for the church. Uh, We like worship leaders who can sing powerful and simple songs. But a lot of times, unfortunately, the church has become disinterested in what the artists do outside of those particular purposes. And we have not allowed artists to become part of the conversation. Now, I believe we live in a really interesting time in church history right now where we have a great opportunity to bring artists back into the conversation, to invite those who may be um, songwriters and writers and photographers and painters and sculptors and all different types of artwork back into the conversation of the church. Jeremy Begbie, who is a... uh, professor at Duke Divinity School, and he writes a lot on Christian aesthetics. He says this, if a culture is created for dance in the church, if congregations cultivate a hunger for theologically minded architecture, if film becomes the servant of the contemplative practices of a worshiping body, if poets and theologians come alongside musicians to craft the songs of God's people, if storytellers collaborate with pastors to envision creative ways to embody the mission of God in their towns and cities, well, then I can only imagine that that will be a day of great gospel energy. I love that. So our challenge is, as we see all of these creative metaphors and these facts that we are co-creators with God, we must be willing to cultivate this environment of grace and allow for missional creativity to occur. That was kind of a sidestep for us. I'm not saying that Paul's mission in Ephesians chapter 2 and his goal is to say, be more creative in the church or sing more creative songs or whatever. Paul has a really broad vision. In fact, we see here that Paul is saying that We are to be poema, not just to do poema. There's something about who we are that is God's artwork, that is God's masterpiece as we live this life of good works. I think that one of the challenges, well, first of all, artists will probably tell you that their art is not something separate from themselves. It's part of who they are. And what I am challenging in us us today is not that we just do more good works, but that we would be a people who live God's mission in the world. If we truly believe in the grace of God, one way that we might think about this is in our relationships. Um, If we are God's poetry in the world, God's song in the world, it can't help but transform how we think about one another. Have you ever thought about your relationships as a creative endeavor? How can I love someone in a creative way as part of God's song in the world? 1 John 4 verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
if we live in this environment of grace, if we really desire to be God's poetry, it can't help but transform how we think about our relationships. It will challenge us to see the person across from us in a different light. It will cause us to reach out to people who are different than us, people who are broken, people who are sinful. This way of living and this way of being in the world as God's artwork will challenge us in our relationships. It will challenge us to reach out to those considered unlovable by society. Jesus, we saw, did this with the paralytic, with the woman at the well, with the woman caught in adultery. It's all different examples of this. This grace empowers us to live a life that loves others. Because Christ loved us, we love one another. So being poema in the world means a transformation of our relationships. And I think we can even take this further. And in order to do this, we need to look back at our call in Genesis. If we are truly God's poetry, if we're really empowered by God's grace, it will affect how we live in the physical world around us. It will challenge even the use and abuse of what God has given us, whether it be our bodies or our money or even the creation that we live in. Now, when we start talking about creation and caring for creation, everybody's political um, things jump up, and that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, This is a deeper conversation. I hate that we always go to the political first, but this conversation of living in our physical world is really significant for the Christian. Romans 8, 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait there patiently. There are three words that I would suggest that we keep in mind when it comes to our relationship with the physical world that we live in. Those three words are stewardship, Sabbath, and redemption. Stewardship is a word that we often hear in reference to our money. If you've ever taken a financial peace university class or have gone through um, kind of any teaching that is, is kind of biblical on finances, you'll know that we often think of ourselves as stewards of God's money, that everything that we earn, that all of our money is God's, but we are stewards or we are managers of our finances. But this is really true for all of our physical world. Humans were created and given this task in Genesis 1 to be stewards of creation. Now, sometimes we have a misunderstanding of that because where it says that we're to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all those kind of things, some of our more archaic translations, they translate that to have dominion over. And so that's a word that kind of gets stuck in our mind and we think, so I am to dominate the physical world, right? I'm going to take advantage of it and use it and use it over and over again. But that's not the desire of Genesis 1. The desire is that we are caretakers or stewards of our physical world. God has called us to take care of the world, to take care of the resources, the finances that he's given us, and to take care of our bodies, these bodies that he's given us. Secondly, Sabbath. 
Sabbath is this concept we see all throughout scripture, and it's actually a principle that's at the core of creation. So when we choose to take a day of Sabbath, or even when we pause in the middle of the day to pray, or when we come to a worship gathering, what we are doing there is we are acknowledging God's sovereignty over the world and over our lives. When my wife and I sit down to pray before a meal, I used to think that what I was doing is I was kind of saying a blessing over the meal, which is fine, but, but kind of putting a covering over the meal. So I was basically saying, um, Lord, bless this meal so I don't get sick from it. <laughs> Or, uh, or bless this meal um, so that, you know, that I don't, that basically bless it to the nourishment of my body. So have you heard that kind of said before? Bless it to the nourishment of my body, which is really strange when you're eating a fast food cheeseburger and you say that, right? <laughs> but when we look at the scriptural story, we see how Jesus thanked God for the, and prayed at the breaking of bread. We see that really what I'm doing is I'm stopping and I'm acknowledging, I'm being thankful to God for this food that he's given me. And I'm also acknowledging that this food I'm about to eat didn't actually originate at the grocery store. It came from the ground at some point. Now, if it's a fast food cheeseburger, it's been a while since it's been in the ground and it's gone through some things in the process, but eventually, originally it came from the ground. And so I'm recognizing, Lord, thank you that you sustain creation in such a way that you have given me this meal. I recognize you are sovereign, you are God, and I am not. Sabbath is really taking that time to recognize God is at work even when I'm not working. So if I stop working, the world's not going to fall apart because God controls the world. The world doesn't revolve around me. The reason why the Old Testament is filled with all these commands to observe the Sabbath is because when you observe Sabbath rhythm, you are saying God is sovereign. God is Lord. And a byproduct of that, a byproduct of recognizing God's sovereignty is that it allows our bodies, it allows our minds, and it allows creation to rest and to replenish. If you just keep spending your money, keep spending it and spending it and spending it, it's going to eventually run out, right? If you keep using your bodies, if you keep just kind of just going about your day and you never rest at all, it's going to eventually run out, isn't it? It's eventually going to die. The same is true with all of our physical resources. If it's not given time to rest and to replenish, it eventually runs out. So this may challenge us in how are we to be good stewards of everything God has given us our finances, our bodies, the world around us. The third word is redemption. And this one is kind of the most mysterious. We don't know exactly what all of this looks like. But the scriptural story is really about, it's, it's not just about kind of keeping things from decaying, keeping things from getting worse. The, the biblical story is about things being put back together and being made right. So we believe even as our physical world is, is broken in some ways that somehow the biblical story tells us it's going to be made right. It's going to be put back together again. It's this beautiful thing. And somehow, we don't know how exactly, but somehow when we live in the life of God, we are participating in that. We are joining in with that. The book of Revelation tells us of a world restored, of a new heavens and a new earth. And somehow we are called to participate in that. Being this poema means a transformation of how we think about our physical world and what God has given us. And then finally, last one, if we are God's poetry, if we are really empowered by God's grace, it will, it will change the way we think and transform the way we think about the poor and the oppressed in our world. 
all over our world. It will change the way we think about systemic injustices around our world. So when we hear of of a child in Africa who is dying from malaria, our ears perk up a little bit. When we hear about, uh, about people who are in need of medical care in Panama, our ears perk up. We, we go, okay, what is that? What is the cry of God's people here? Because that's what God's ear does, right? That, that when his children were, were in slavery in Egypt, he said, I have heard the cry of my people in slavery in Egypt. And he responded to them. We should be a people who are always listening for the cry of God's people and willing to jump in. Now, this doesn't mean that we're rescuers, that we kind of save the day, that we're the ones that just jump in and we just fix everything and make it right. No, instead, we're a people that say, God, if there are people starving in Africa, Lord, we know and we trust that somehow you are already at work there, that you are already present with them. How can we join in with what you're doing? How can we be a part of that? There's a song that I love, a worship song, and it says, the lyrics are, I have been blessed, now I want to be a blessing. I've been loved, now I want to bring love. I've been invited, I want to share the invitation. I have been changed to bring change, to bring change. And that's our call. We're a blessed people, but it's not just to keep the blessing to ourselves. It's so that we might bless the world. We've been changed so that we can bring change. We've been invited. Now we get to share the invitation with the world. So being poema means a transformation of how we think about the least of these in our world. The moment that we think that this life of God's poetry is about earning something or achieving something or showing to God that we're valuable in his sight is the moment that we've missed it. He already loves each of us more than we could possibly know. This is about living in the way that God has created us to live, fueled by grace, listening to his voice, following his mission. We have been composed as a song of grace. Now our call is to sing that song to a hurting, to a broken world. Amen.